welcome to the Main Question Podcast as we begin Season 5. I'm your host, Ron Lisnett, and we are pumped to share our stories with you this season. There's so much interesting work happening at UMaine in labs and classrooms in the woods and really all across the planet that it's hard to know where to begin this new season. Our first story out of the gate takes a look at the forests of Maine and some of the pests and plagues that threaten them. If we look at Maine forests and we compare it to, for example, the forests experiencing megafires out west or the pine barrens of New Jersey, our forests are great. But the term health is actually kind of subjective. That's Angela Mech, an assistant professor of entomology at the University of Maine. She studies bugs specifically the bugs that infest our forests in Maine, and that means she is very busy indeed. Some of those pests are fairly well known. Spruce budworm, for example, is a pest that has been in Maine before and is on the rise again. Many of these insects can harm trees and affect the industry, but they don't directly affect the general public. Well, the latest plague that has grabbed headlines in the summer of 2021 certainly broke that mold. The brown-tailed moth is a rare triple threat in the bug world. It can affect the ecosystem, it can harm the forest products economy, and the thing that made the public pay attention, it can cause harm to anybody who comes into contact with it by causing itching, rashes, and in some cases, much more serious medical conditions. This bug has occupied much of Angela's time in 2021. She's worked with communities around Maine to monitor the brown-tailed moth population and to try and figure out how to control its numbers. The good news is that she and her team are helping to develop a potential new weapon to curtail this pest in a way that is effective and friendly to the environment. We talked about that research and about some of the other bugs and outbreaks she encounters in her work, including the latest development, a first in the United States facility to help landowners and the public deal with the coming spruce budworm outbreak. We spoke about these challenges just as she was finishing her field work late this summer. Well, Angela, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to join us. I know it's a, a busy time for you being uh, out in the field doing your field work and, and all the research you're doing, but appreciate you uh, joining us and, and telling us what you're up to. Thanks for having me. Set the scene for us. So what is the current state of the health of forests in Maine and beyond, if you want to talk about that? How, How big are the threats they're facing? How are things trending right now? If we look at Maine forests and we compare it to, for example, the forests experiencing megafires out west or the pine barrens of New Jersey, our forests are great. But the term health is actually kind of subjective. So it depends who you're talking to. So some folks consider a forest healthy if it meets the the management objectives, like for a timber industry. Some folks consider it healthy if it is a fully functioning ecosystem, and it's more about the big picture than specific species. And then there are others who consider a forest healthy if it has the ability to sort of bounce back or or recuperate from a big disturbance uh, or, or a stress. And so based on all of those criteria, I would still say that Maine has very healthy forests. We, we are meeting management objectives. Um, I see a lot of vitality um, and fully functioning ecosystems. But Maine is definitely not going to be spared from climate change effects. It's not going to be spared from invasive species. And so when we think of the, the big picture and, and the beyond, it's definitely going to be changing. And that is the one constant with all forests. Forests are always going to be changing 
and we're going to see new changes, uh, I think, across the landscape. You are an entomologist, correct? That is a person who studies bugs. That's, that's what you do, right? I'm glad we defined our terms. That's good. Um, <laughs> So unfortunately for the forests, but maybe fortunately for folks in your line of work uh, that are trying to get into the field, there's a seems to be a lot of work these days. The number of uh, pests and bugs that are plaguing forests and, and other things uh, does not seem to be going down. Unfortunately, uh, you you are correct that there there is a, a lot to keep us busy. So uh, right now in North America, there are about 1,500 non-native insects that feed uh, on our plants or could cause damage. And about a third of those are in our forests. So almost 500 species are in our forests that aren't native to, to our area. And if you think about it, not all of them are bad. If there were 450 really, really bad insects, um, we definitely wouldn't have enough entomologists in the country. But it is, it's just about less than 10% of those actually cause a, a lot of, of impacts in our stand. So it's the ones that folks may have heard of, like emerald ash borer and hemlock willy adelgid and uh, the moth formerly known as gypsy moth, uh, but we still don't have a, a new common name for it. And so those few species, less than 10%, cost us billions of dollars. And that's everybody paying into it at the federal level, at the city level, at the homeowner level. And so our job is to try and learn as much as we can about these species, figure out how to help control them, uh, how to manage them. It is a great opportunity for research. Um, if there are, are students that really enjoy being out in the field and being able to test different things, then uh, forest entomology is a, is a wonderful field. I'm very, very glad that I, I chose this as my career. So let's talk about uh, what maybe uh, keeps you up at night. Uh, the biggest threats out there grabbing headlines. Let's start with the brown tail moth, which has really grabbed headlines this past summer, 2021. What is the trajectory of this past? How, how big is the infestation uh, and how is it growing right now? And, and is Maine sort of an epicenter? So brown tail moth has a very uh, interesting history. It's actually been here for over 100 years. It was first detected in, in the 1890s. And it was detected in Massachusetts and basically spread across New England, uh, northeasterly and covered Maine into New Brunswick, Sunland, um, and went over to, to New York. And that massive outbreak lasted for about 15 years and then retracted and basically was people could only find brown tail moth in Casco Bay, Maine and Cape Cod area of Massachusetts. And brown tail moth is is interesting in that it, it has these growth spurts. Um, it's a natural part of its life cycle. It, it's from Eurasia and in Eurasia, it also has these, these population growth spurts. So we, we refer to that as a cyclical outbreaking sort of pest. So it's not a constant outbreak. It just, it happens uh, every so often. In Maine, we've seen these growths, but this outbreak is sort of the once in a hundred year um, outbreak. We're seeing the expansion going into areas that haven't seen brown tail moths since that initial outbreak 100 years ago. It's now covering about a third of the state. Most of the coastal areas where it started and it's been spreading inland. So here in Orono, uh, we now have brown tail moth. And this past summer, I've seen, I saw more moths than I've ever seen in this area. Um, so it 
doesn't seem to be declining. As far as the trajectory, uh, at the moment, it is still going strong. Um, I think we're, we're going to be dealing with brown tail moth for, for a little bit time more. And I think further inland folks, folks should be prepared that they may also be finding brown tail moth on their property. For those that haven't had the misfortune of being afflicted by brown tail moths, it, tell us, what does it do to the to the trees and what does it do to people or, or other creatures out there? Um, you, you described, I think, a trifecta of threats. So what does that mean? Brown tail moth is unique. I, I usually deal with, with tree insects, which can have ecological impacts because they're attacking a tree, killing a tree species, affecting the ecosystem or having cascading uh, effects. Um, and so brown tail moth has a very large host range. It feeds on over 80 species of trees and, and a slew of families. And so it prefers oaks, for example, and it will defoliate and kill oak trees with repeated defoliation. And so we have to think like, okay, well, what about all of the, the, the mammals that are dependent upon acorns for part of their diet? If we lose a significant amount of oaks, we're going to have these ecological impacts from brown tail moth that cascade. So a lot of tree pests have ecological impacts. And then we have economic impacts of pests. So those are, you know, insects that are attacking and damaging uh, trees that are utilized for the timber industry that have an economic value. Um, so feeding by an insect might reduce growth rate. Uh, or apple orchards. Brown tail moth, unfortunately, loves apple. Um, and so we're seeing impacts in, in that industry as well. Um, and then recreation and tourism. I've been hearing nightmares from, from folks where um, outdoor events are having to be canceled or moved because of brown tail, that people are canceling their reservations because it was during uh, brown tail uh, peak time period. Um, and so lots of economic impacts, but the big one that most folks know about is the human health impact. So that's what makes it the trifecta, economic, ecological, and human health. And so for, for us humans, unfortunately, they have little tiny barbed hairs that have a toxin in it. And those hairs go airborne every time they molt. They molt uh, about seven times during their, their life cycle. And those hairs get stuck to us with the barbs and the toxin goes in and creates a poison ivy-like rash, um, which I learned very early on I am not immune to. It can even cause respiratory issues uh, from inhaling them for people with sensitive systems. Wow. So it's a, it's a beast. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not a fan of it. <laughs> I guess you have to sort of respect how effective it is at doing its job in a way. Yes, it has figured out a way to be highly successful at what it does. Talking about how to battle this, this pest, yeah, I, I know you're looking at a, a new way to combat this moth. Can you describe what you and your colleagues are trying to do to knock down moth populations? Any early results? And, and basically, you're, uh, you're the opposite of a dating service, basically, right? <laughs> yes, uh, for, for part of what we're doing, exactly. One of the big bummers is that because brown tail moth hasn't had an explosion like this in 100 years, there hasn't been a lot of research regarding brown tail moths. If you dig through the scientific literature, there was less than five articles were written in the last 20 years. Um, it's just, it's not uh, that well studied, which is great for me because it means there are so many possibilities. Um, but one of the things that we're most excited about, we're, we're testing a number of things, is a semiochemical control method, which is basically using pheromones. 
And so in, in entomology, in agriculture systems and forest systems, pheromones can be used to manipulate insect populations because all insects are using pheromones. And the pheromones are very specific to a single species. Pheromones are only used to communicate within the same species. One thing that was um, studied about 20, well, more like 30 uh, years ago, really started to get into is using sex pheromones as a mating disruption technique. And it was highly successful with the gypsy moth and it is currently being used for the, the federal slow the spread program. And so what we do is we wanna inundate an area so that there is so much of the female sex pheromone in the area that the males can no longer find the females to mate, which in turn causes the population to basically uh, crash in that area. So it's highly specific. There's no uh, environmental impacts or non-target effects, um, which we do have with, with chemical pesticides. We're looking at killing a lot of insects, not just the insect that we uh, are focused on. Um, and it can be even cheaper um, than chemical treatment. So if it turns out to work, it's, it's, a, it's a very good step in, in hopefully bringing the populations down in, in Maine. Any early results uh, encouraging or? Yeah, so we, we are working with Trace Incorporated, which is a, a company that is synthesizing the pheromone. The sex pheromone has been identified. And this summer we did a pilot study to basically test that synthesized pheromone to see uh, how effective it was during this summer's flight season. So we tested different purities of the pheromone and different types of traps and got some very strong results. Uh, there definitely is a favorite uh, for the males. Uh, there was a particular lure that they were more attracted to and even one of the traps was better at trapping them than, than the other. So we're gonna take these results and work with the work with Trace to now increase the dosage of that and basically start testing if we can uh, confuse the males. Let's talk about some other threats that are out there. Maybe a lot of these, unlike the brown tail mob, don't affect public health like, like that uh, pest can, but they certainly do a number on tree populations in the forest industry. Maybe just give us a, a, a very brief rundown of some of the ones that are people maybe have or haven't heard about in the news, spruce budworm, emerald ash mm -hmm. borer, hemlock, woolly, adelgid, I think I said that right. Uh, yes, so these, those are some of the big ones, right? They are some of the big ones. Um, I Hemlock, woolly, adelgid, I've worked with now for almost, it'll be 20 years next year. So that's been my personal nemesis uh, until brown tail moth is my, my new nemesis. <laughs> um, and so uh, our Eastern hemlocks are, are threatened by uh, HWA, as we, we refer to it. It is a slow killer. So if you do find hemlock woolly adelgid on your trees, there is a lot of time to save those trees. Um, emerald ash borer is a recent invasion within the last few years. Right now here in Orno, it hasn't been detected, but it has uh, down in the southwestern part of the state. And so all ash species are threatened. Uh, it's a wood borer and it can cause mortality within a couple of years. So it's a, a much quicker um, killer. And then uh, spruce budworm is actually a native species. So it's native to North America. It can kill our spruces and firs. It defoliates the needles. And so it is a, a big pest in the timber industry, especially up in the, in the North Maine Woods area. 
I know that the University of Maine has a long history of dealing with spruce budworm. I know that there was a big outbreak, I believe, in the 70s, and, and here we are again. And I know that uh, you have a lab that is uh, being uh, put up and, and ready to go to help uh, deal with this pest and help the industry. Can you talk about some of the new developments in, in the battle against spruce budworm? Sure. So uh, back with the last outbreak, um, they developed a process to try and determine whether a, a particular area or a stand was going to, to have an explosion. So whether the outbreak was in a particular area. And so what, what that did, it created a model that based on the second instar larval stage, however many you had determined your outbreak potential. So if you had more than seven, seven is the magical number, more than seven L2s, we refer to them, means that you should be prepared to, to have some treatment in the following spring. And so the process for counting those caterpillars because they are in their silk uh, nest sort of for the winter is a chemical process. And so we are opening up the spruce budworm processing lab. It's going to be the only one in the United States. We do have a couple in Canada that have been processing uh, branches from Maine. But uh, now that the need in Maine has increased, we're opening up the facility here and we're gonna be ready to start processing uh, hopefully next month. And that will be a service that is available to, to anybody. Um, so all landowners would be able to send in samples, um, private and, and um, industrial and agency folks can utilize it as well. So we're excited. Yeah, similar to what Cooperative Extension is doing with the Tick Lab, it's, this is a service that the public yeah. or the industry can take advantage of. Exactly. Yep. Let's uh, do a little basic bio 101 for, for neophytes like me. You know, you hear about all these cyclical, the, the cyclical nature of these pests, how every 15 years or every 30 years or, or whatever, the, the locusts descend or whatever it happens to be. How do you explain how that biology works? So first out, not all insects are cyclical, um, but a lot of them in the forest actually are. And that is one of the, the great mysteries in biology. No, there is no direct answer for, for all species as to why they, they outbreak. Most of the, the thought behind it is that it has to do with natural factors and these trophic interactions. So it has to do with hosts. It has to do with the predators or the natural enemies. So the whole system that there, there is a slight shift in the system that causes these populations to increase in abundance and then go back down. And so there are um, spruce, southern pine beetle, for example, is a great example of an outbreaking cyclical pest where we know in the South that every seven to 10 years somewhere, there's going to be an outbreak. Uh, spruce budworm, we know that approximately every 30 years, there's going to be an outbreak. And with brown tail moth, it's every 10 to 15 years. Um, although really hoping that we're not gonna be having the same conversation in 15 years. Uh, so other insects, so there are those that have this natural cycle that, that we can, we've seen through history, all of the records we can predict, we know it's coming. Then there are those that increase the abundance based on, like they develop the outbreak phase based on something that happened. So if there was something that caused a stress to the trees that they usually attack, and now there's this overabundance of food, um, that that can cause an outbreak or a disturbance. So if there's a, a windstorm and now all of these 
stressed and fallen over trees that can cause an outbreak. Um, so the example that I always think of is the hemlock borer. So it's a native uh, wood boring insect. It's, it's usually just a secondary pest and doesn't do anything. But when hemlock woolly adalgid first kicked in and started stressing out all of the hemlocks, we had this hemlock borer outbreak that we had never seen before. Um, and it ended up like basically putting the nail in the coffin for a lot of hemlock trees that were stressed out um, from HWA. Been a long time since I sat in a biology class, so <laughs> thanks for the explanation. So as with all ecological issues these days, a changing climate seems to be uh, play a role. How much does that factor into the brown tail moth or some of these other pests you're talking about, or just big picture? It seems like changes are happening faster than the forest itself can sort of keep up with. So all insects are poikilotherms, which is just a big fancy word for they do not regulate their body temperature. They're not warm blooded animals uh, like us. So this means that any change in climate is going to affect an insect. No matter that change, whatever the changes in climate is going to, to affect an insect. And so there are some effects that are very direct like a uh, warmer winter is going to increase their survival over the winter, or a longer growing season could add an extra generation uh, to particular species. So we have those direct effects. And then indirect, it can affect the host. So we're experiencing a drought. And so trees are stressed out by that drought. And when trees are stressed, they can't defend against insects as well. And so insects can be more successful during a drought um, because the trees are, are being stressed. Temperatures and climates could also affect the natural enemies of the insect and could either be a stronger presence or less presence. Um, so there are uh, effects of climate with brown tail moth. Uh, we have a, in Maine, we have a fungus uh, that does kill brown tail moth caterpillars. It's called Entomophaga alicae. And Typically, it would, it would cause a significant decline in brown tail moth, but it requires cool, wet springs, which is something we haven't had in Maine in a few years. And so that change in climate um, has helped brown tail moth reach the level that it currently is, because um, there hasn't been anything to naturally bump it down. Just back to the brown tail moth and, and the concept that you've come up with, the mating disruption technique. How is that going to be rolled out? I, I know you've, you've been working with some members of the public to do sort of monitoring and, and trapping, correct? Um, but how, if the concept works, how does that roll out and, and start to really make a dent? In other systems, like in agriculture systems, or even for other tree pests, like, like gypsy moth or southern pine beetle, um, these, these semiochemicals can be made easily available for, for the public or for city councils or for states. Uh, to implement with, with state funds or federal funds. For some pests, you can buy dispensers that you can just tack to your trees and, you know, like get enough based on how many acres you have. Every 10 trees gets, gets a dispenser. Um, some companies create a, a compound that can be sprayed into the canopy and it will slowly degrade. And as it degrades, it's emitting the pheromone. And so you only need to spray once um, and it will basically... Uh, cover that, that entire area. And, and even with gypsy moth, they spray uh, using airplanes over across very large landscapes. And it's very successful. It just sticks to the leaves 
and slowly degrades and it covers a very large area. So depending upon the resources that are available to either homeowners or to city councils or, or to the state, um, there could be different ways of, of implementing this to, to control brown tail moth. And just so people realize when you talk about spray and chemicals, people are thinking, oh no, you know, there's some sort of <laughs> nasty chemical. This is a natural substance that only affects the, uh, the insects that you're targeting, correct? Yes, they are environmentally friendly. There, there is no impact of the spray. It slowly biodegrades. And so there's no residuals and it is highly specific to just brown tail moss. So whereas other, um, you know, a few decades ago, large spray applications might affect, for example, all caterpillars or all insects or something, or affect potentially aquatic systems and, and lobsters, none of that would be the case with, uh, with applying the pheromone. It's just a, a pheromone. <laughs> um, it doesn't have the, the negative consequences of our traditional chemical pesticides. It's more environmentally friendly and it's more economically uh, friendly, that it is much cheaper for the same rate that one would use um, for traditional pesticides. What can homeowners do or property owners uh... The, first of all, to identify that they have it. And is there anything they can do to their trees or their uh, flora that they're dealing with? Yeah, so at the moment, our options are sort of limited. The homeowner, what you can do is you wanna look for those winter webs. So once the leaves fall off the trees this summer, brown tail moth creates a silken web that hangs out at the tips of branches. And so, you can see these um, in the trees. They can reflect the sunlight if you're standing in a certain direction. And so if you find any of those webs in the winter, you can clip them and, and kill them by just throwing them in soapy water. Or if, if allowed, you can also burn them. If they're too high, you can hire tree care companies can come with bucket trucks to help clip winter webs out of the trees. So if the winter webs are eliminated on your property, you won't have caterpillars feeding on those trees the following spring. The Maine Forest Service has some wonderful resources uh, on their brown tail moth website. So they have videos to show like how to identify uh, the nest and what you can do. They also have a list of tree care companies that will work with brown tail moth. Probably the biggest thing is that most folks don't realize, they don't look in the winter and they may not realize they have brown tail moth until the following spring when they start itching. And usually by that point, it's too late to actually treat the trees. And so you do need to be proactive. You need to look for this. And if you know that you do wanna get your trees chemically treated against brown tail moth, you need to get on the reservation books pretty quick. I, I heard this summer, there were many people who called around and all tree care companies were booked. Um, and so making sure that you are proactive and don't wait um, till the last minute to, to try to get someone to come out. So at the moment, those are our options, clipping the winter webs and chemical treatments until we're, we're able to figure some new stuff out. So finally, as we wrap up here, simple question, why bugs for you? What, what, what drives you to, to do this work? And what would you say to students that were coming here to the university about what the opportunities are or what the field is like? Yeah, so I, I did my undergrad and I was a plant nerd. Uh, to start. Uh, my undergrad was in botany and I just, I loved plants. I thought they were so cool. And hemlock was my, my favorite tree. 
And then uh, as I was wandering around with my undergrad research, I found these white fuzzy things on hemlock and saw all the hemlocks die and, and just realized that if I really loved plants, I had to learn about the insects that could kill them and therefore, and then study how to kill those insects to save the plants that I really enjoy. And I thought plants were the coolest until I took my first entomology class, which wasn't even until grad school. Um, and then I realized how cool insects were. Um, and I think they are so fascinating. We can learn so much from them. Here at UMaine, uh, entomology, the cohort is within the School of Biology and Ecology. And we are actually in the process of, of adding uh, an entomology concentration and an entomology minor, because we are definitely seeing uh, a lot of new faces and folks taking our entomology classes and wanting to learn more about entomology because insects are so cool. For the, the state, we, we will continue to, to study issues and pests within the state. All of my entomology uh, colleagues here are working on a very important system or pests within the state. Um, and we welcome students to, to come work with us and, and fall in love with insects just as much as we did. Well, it certainly sounds like uh, they're needed. That's for sure. Thanks for taking the time uh, to, to share your thoughts and your story with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Ron. And if anybody has any questions, um, feel free to email me. I'm at Angela.mech, that's M-E-C-H, at umaine.edu. Thanks for tuning us in. We've got a great lineup of stories in the pipeline for Season 5. A new episode will drop every Thursday during the fall semester. As always, the main question can be found on Google and Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and on UMaine's Facebook page. Have questions or comments? Drop us a note at mainquestion at main.edu and consider subscribing. This is Ryan Lesnet. We'll catch you next time around on The Main Question.